a video version of this podcast is available at AboundingJoy.com and also on our YouTube pages. The following Bible study is a study I've shared with the Standing Firm Bible Study class at Fairview Baptist Tabernacle in Sweetwater, Tennessee. If you're not involved in a Sunday morning Bible study group, we would love it. We'd be thrilled for you to join us this Sunday. We meet in room 216. It's in the Family Life Center every Sunday morning, 10:15 a.m. You can find more information, including ways to contact us by going to AboundingJoy.com, clicking on Standing Firm Bible Study Class, and you'll learn more about us. It might help you to take a screenshot of the screen right now. I'm glad you joined the Bible study today. I'm praying that the Lord will use it to help you stand firm in His Word and be more like Jesus. Well, hey guys, thanks for joining me in Bible study today. A couple of weeks ago, we began looking at the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, and Lord willing, we are going to get back to it, but not today. <laughs> Last week, David helped us understand that the, what the Bible has to say about the assurance we have of salvation. By the way, when we share the gospel using evangelism explosion, I think I've talked with you about that before. One of the diagnostic questions we often ask is, have you come to the place in your spiritual life where you know for certain that if you were to die today, you'd go to heaven? And if they say, well, I hope so, which, as David pointed out last week, is what most people say, I hope so. <laughs> Sometimes we would say, you know what, when we started talking about these things today, I really hoped I would have some good news to share with you. And now I'm really sure I do, <laughs> because there's a verse in the Bible that says, these things I have written to you that you might know that you have eternal life. God wants us to know for certain that we have eternal life. Would it be okay if I shared with you right now? How I came to know for certain that I have eternal life. And as far as that goes, how you can know too. And I think most people at that point would give you permission to go ahead and share. I mean, some might not and some might not feel like they had the time. But, but I think in many cases, you get a chance at that point to share the gospel. It's a good way to lead into a, an opportunity to talk about Jesus. But today is one of our scheduled Bible doctrinal breaks that we have from time to time. And we have been encouraged to look at the doctrine of sin. And in order to do that, our Sunday school material has directed us to the first part of the book of Romans. Really, really powerful stuff. The background passage is, is the suggested for today is Romans 1 through 8. And there's way too much there to, to really cover at all. But in some ways, you really could argue that Romans chapter 6 and 8 especially you could argue, make a pretty good case that this is the heart of the whole Bible right here in Romans chapter 6 and Romans chapter 8. Very profound scripture, very profound truth about the great salvation that we have in Christ, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wrote this letter to the Romans while he was on his third missionary journey. Probably the year was 56 AD. That would have made it four years before he finally made it to Rome of course, at that point, he was under house arrest. He wasn't free at that point, but that was in the year 60 when he finally got there, 60 AD. But at this point, when he's writing the letter, he's in Corinth. And he has been thinking and praying a lot about the church in Rome. Paul did not personally establish that church. In fact, Paul had not personally even been to that church at all. And it's fascinating when we get to chapter 15 of Romans near the end, Paul made it clear his plans included a trip to Rome on his way to Spain. He wanted to go to Spain. Early church history say he made it. The Bible doesn't tell us that. 
But he wanted to deliver some support first to the impoverished Christians who lived in Jerusalem. Then he wanted to get to Rome. And he eventually did get to Rome about four years after he wrote this. And the truth is, we don't know how the church at Rome was established. We know it was. <laughs> and we know it had been there for some time. There's a clue that it might have been a pretty strong church, even at this point in time when Paul wrote this letter. Because in chapter 15, verse 23, Paul says, I've longed for many years to come to you. Many years. He's been looking to this church for years, wanting to go visit them. So it wasn't a brand new church, that's for sure. And in verse 14 of chapter 15, Paul describes them this way. He said, I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able to instruct one another. That doesn't sound like an immature church, does it? Sounds like there's some maturity there that Paul's already heard about and he knows about. He's aware of. It's at least possible that that church was established by believers who were saved in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. Remember what happened then? Remember on the day of Pentecost, Jews came from all over the empire to Jerusalem. They did that three times a year at certain Jewish holy days. Rome, of course, was the biggest city in the empire by far. And it had a huge population of Jews as well. So it's very likely that many, many of the Jews who were in Jerusalem at Pentecost were from Rome. That would have been about 30 AD. You remember what happened? The Holy Spirit came down on them on the day of Pentecost and thousands of people got saved in those days there in the early days of the church, right after the Holy Spirit came down. So many of them could have been residents of the city of Rome. We don't know that. We're just conjecturing, but it certainly makes sense. But if that's the case, this church could have already been about 25 years old when Paul wrote this letter to them. Fascinating. In Romans chapter 16, Paul mentions 26 people there in Rome by name. And there are Bible students who think, you know what that probably means? That probably means there were 26 house churches in Rome that were led by these 26 people. They were the leaders of the house churches. Now, again, the Bible doesn't say that. We're kind of reading between the lines, but it seems like a reasonable guess. We also know that the Emperor Nero started persecuting Christians in 64 AD, right after the great fire that he started in Rome. Remember that? That would have been about eight years after Paul wrote this letter, about four years after Paul finally reached Rome under house arrest, probably about two years after Paul's release. And we know there were a large number of Christians in Rome at that time. We know that from extra biblical sources. Do you remember the Roman historian Tacitus, very famous Roman historian? He was not a Christian, but he says that the Christians in Rome at that time were an immense multitude. In fact, you can, it's beyond that. What he actually said was that there was an immense multitude of Christians who were convicted and mocked and tortured and killed by Nero. So there were a lot of Christians there. Let's look at that timeline one more time. I've, I've already said all this, but let's just put it together in, in order here. So in 56 AD is where we're going to start. That's when Paul wrote this letter to the Romans from Corinth on his third missionary journey. Four years later, 60 AD, Paul reached Rome, but he was under house arrest. Two years after that, in 62 AD, he was released. And then two years after that, in 64 AD, Nero set fire to the city and blamed the Christians and began this in very intense time of persecution. Two years after that, in 66 AD, Paul was re-imprisoned, and this time he was martyred, he was beheaded. 
The reason I like to go over that kind of thing every now and then, it's good for us to be reminded these things we're talking about took place in the lives of real people, in real places, in real time. We're talking about real history here. If we're not careful, we'll sometimes think of these things as Bible stories, kind of isolated from each other, as if they were made up or something, not part of actual history. But archaeologists and historians have done a wonderful job, especially in recent decades, of debunking the idea that these things are just made up stories. This is history, (laughs) real history. Now, I want us to spend just a few minutes looking at the early chapters of Romans. I want us to spend a little more time when we get to chapter 6, but let's just kind of do a quick overview here. The first chapter of Romans, after some words of introduction, contains what I believe is one of the most relevant passages of Scripture for our own culture that you'll find anywhere in the Bible, because it's designed for a highly secularized and highly sexualized culture. And and of course, that's the culture we're living in, right? If you're interested in studying those verses, I posted six video studies from verse 16 to the end of the chapter, verse 32, on our website. If you want to watch them, by the way, they're posted in the Warriors of Christ series that I teach at Cross Creek. If you want to look that up, if you need help, let me know. I'll give you a link. In chapter 2, Paul teaches us about the truth that God is an impartial judge of sin. He is a judge, and he will judge Jews and Gentiles alike. And all of us must be prepared to face the righteous judgment of God. Look at verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. And he's making it very clear in this chapter. That's true for Jews and it's true for Gentiles, for all of us. It's also interesting that in chapter 2, we learn that how Paul uses the term Jew. Uh, Sometimes he uses it to refer to descendants of Abraham, of course. But at other times, he uses it to refer to those who are what we might call spiritual descendants of Abraham, uh, people of faith, even if we're not biological descendants of Abraham. So in verse 28, he says, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. It's just fascinating to study how Paul uses that word. It's not the only time he does that. In chapter 3, we learn that every human being, Jews and Gentiles, every one of us is guilty before God. Look at verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. We've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Well, how emphatic can you get, huh? And then that very famous verse that you probably memorized in chapter 3, verse 23, for all, A-L-L, all, all of us, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In chapter 4, he shows how Abraham was justified before God by faith and not by works. Verse 22, that's why his, talking about Abraham's faith, was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, Paul says, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. In chapter 5, we learn that even though we are all sinners, Christ still died for us, even while we were sinners. Look at verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died 
for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In chapter 5, he also gives us one of the many very powerful scriptures that teach what we Baptists like to call security of the believer. That's a very important, precious doctrine for us. And it's very clearly taught in the Bible. Look at this verse. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. You hear what he's saying? He said, look, God loved us enough when we were enemies of God, when we were in our sins, he loved us enough to send Jesus to die for us, to make us his kids. <laughs> and now that we are his kids, do you think he's going to throw us away? When we were not his kids, he loved us enough for Jesus to die for us. Now that we are his kids, he's certainly going to take care of us. He's going to, going to save us. He's certainly going to bring us through. The last part of chapter 5 teaches us that just as sin and death came into the world through the first Adam, righteousness and life came into the world through the last Adam, our Lord Jesus Christ. And chapter 5 ends with these very beautiful and powerful words. Look at verse 17. For if because of one man's trespass, talking of Adam, the first Adam, death reigned through that one man, Adam, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ, the last Adam. Therefore, as one trespass, Adam's sin, led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness, talking about Jesus' death for us on the cross, leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. He'll explain that more in chapter 7. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that brings us to chapter 6. <laughs> which many scholars, many theologians consider to be one of the most difficult passages, but one of the most profound and important passages in the whole Bible. In my opinion, one of the greatest preachers who ever preached the Word of God was a man named Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, an awesome man of God. He was a medical doctor at first, before he became a pastor. But eventually, in 1939, he was called to Westminster Chapel in the heart of central London, where for four years he worked as an associate pastor side-by-side side with the great G. Campbell Morgan. You may have heard of him. G. Campbell Morgan retired in 1943. That was two years before he died in 1945. And Martin Lloyd-Jones in 1943 became the, the, what we might call the lead pastor of the church until he retired in 1968. But Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 366 sermons on the book of Romans, over a period of 12 years, to a full house at Westminster Chapel on Friday evenings between October 1955 up until March of 1968. Most of those sermons were about an hour long. 
pretty serious church, wouldn't you say? I think you could tell a church is pretty serious about the word of God when somebody says, well, it's Friday. What are you going to be doing this evening? And the answer is, well, I'm going down to Westminster Chapel to hear one of Martin Lloyd-Jones' hour-long sermons on the book of Romans. <laughs> it's a great way to spend Friday evening, I think. Anyway, it was the longest sermon series of his entire ministry, which makes sense, of course. And it was also the last one. He retired shortly after finishing that series in 1968. He had pastored there for 30 years. He died in 1981 at the age of 81. Martin Lloyd-Jones said that a church member came to him early in his ministry at Westminster Chapel and said, when are you going to preach through Romans? <laughs> and his answer at the time was, he said, as soon as I understand chapter 6. <laughs> But eventually he understood, I believe, he understood chapter 6 very well. And he preached 22 hour-long sermons on just this one chapter, chapter 6. It's, it's such an important chapter in God's Word, such a powerful chapter. And we're just going to barely begin to scratch the surface a little bit of the first couple of verses and look at it just a tad. You know, we're not going to get very deep into it. What I'm hoping will happen is that just by looking at this much of it, it'll whet your appetite to want to get into it a little bit more and dig a little deeper. I want us to read the first 11 verses. No way we're going to cover all that, but I want us to read it just to get the context. And that's kind of the first section of, of chapter 6. And I've got to warn you here, if you've never read it before, it may seem a little obscure. You may think, whoa, I'm not sure what he's talking about here. But as you dig into it, and as you meditate on it, as you study it, and begin to understand it, you'll find that it gets really, really exciting to you. It's one of the most powerful passages of God's Word. So let's read the first 11 verses. In fact, let's pray first and ask God to help us understand what we're reading. Father, we're looking at your holy Word, infallible, inerrant Word, your living Word, sharper than a two-edged sword. So Lord, would you please help us to realize what an incredible thing we're doing as we read your Word? And would you help us have the perspective of how you've used this passage and this book of Romans so powerfully in the past, over and over again. So, Lord, please speak to our hearts. Teach us from your word. Let us hear you. Let us understand what you're saying. And we'll give you glory for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be, this translation says, done away with. I like rendered powerless better. In order that our body of sin might be rendered powerless so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
If you ever pick up one of the prayer cards out in the lobby of our church before you walk into the worship center, uh, you know, Holly's got these things available every month so we can have some certain things to pray for regarding our church and different ministries and missionaries and those kind of things. But one of the things you'll see on there every time, I believe, is that we're praying for revival. We're praying for spiritual awakening. Now, listen. Before revival or before spiritual awakening can come to a church or to any people, certain things must happen. (laughs) First of all, there must be an awakening of the absolute ugliness and horror of sin. We have to be able to see sin like God sees sin. And there has to be an awareness that when we sin, we're resisting God. In spite of all his love and his power, his wisdom, we're rebelling against him. We're figuratively shaking our fists in his face. We're trying to be our own God. And we're saying to God, I choose to do this my way, not your way. And we've got to realize how horrifying that is. And I think along with that, we have to accept the fact that that awareness, humanly speaking, is impossible. I mean, you can hear me say these words, but there can't become that kind of awareness, especially in a culture like we're living in, where we're inundated with sin and everybody thinks it's just fine. And in a culture where we're used to thinking of ourselves as victims and we're so used to rationalizing, everybody around us does the same thing, excusing our behaviors, rationing our sins, believing that we can create our own moral system of what's right and what's wrong for us. That's the kind of culture we live in. But To see sin like God does, I think, especially in this kind of culture, I think it's going to take a supernatural work. God can do it. God can can change our minds. He can help us to see it. And he uses his word to bring that about. But that ought to be one of our prayers. Lord, please help us see sin like you do. There also, I believe, has to be an awakening to the truth about what God says about us. The truth about For example, what we are before we come to Christ and the truth about what we are after we come to Christ. We got to understand the truth about about us. And when we have a genuine awakening to that truth, I believe it will lead by the grace of God, by the blood of Christ to overcoming sin, conquering sin. Holly preached a lot about this this past Sunday. You remember that message? Very powerful message. God uses his word to bring this about. And guys, it seems that down through the centuries, the primary book of the Bible that God has used for bringing these two things to pass, both the awakening to the horror of sin and the awakening to the nature of mankind, is the book of Romans. Not just once, but over and over and over, God has done this through history. One of the greatest and most influential Christians in the history of the church was a man named Augustine. You remember him? He was born in 354 A.D., and God brought him to Christ, guess how? Through a study of Romans. You remember Martin Luther, the father of the Protestant Reformation? In the early part of the 16th century, God used Martin Luther's study of the book of Romans to bring him to Christ, to bring him out of the deadly legalism that the Roman Catholic Church was locked into. Then in the 18th century, a couple of hundred years later, God used the book of Romans again to bring John Wesley to Christ and and to help bring about the Great Awakening. In fact, Wesley was actually studying Luther's introduction to his commentary on Romans when he got saved. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing how God has used this incredible letter. 
And the heart of it all is Romans chapter 6. When we begin to truly understand and internalize chapter 6 of Romans, it will radically affect our understanding of sin. It will affect how we praise and worship the Lord. It will radically affect how we understand unbelievers and how we relate to unbelievers. A few minutes ago, we kind of walked through the first five chapters of Romans, but but especially in chapters 3, 4, and 5, God teaches us what we call the doctrine of justification through faith, by God's grace alone. And he leads us right up to chapter 5, verse 20. We read this verse a few minutes ago. Let's look at it again. Where sin abounded, God's grace abounded all the more. Now, when some people see a verse like this, they, they may... They think, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is dangerous. <laughs> it may seem scandalous. It, it, it may seem silly. It may seem wrong because to them it sounds too much like a license to sin. So what happens to men, we, we all are tempted to do this sometimes with God's word, is we'll reinterpret it. We'll say, ooh, I'm not sure I like how that sounds. So we think, well, maybe God means this and we'll, we'll change the meaning. We do that to a lot of good, difficult passages in God's Word. And when we do, if we're not careful, we will look back and realize, "Uh uh-oh, I've watered down God's Word. Or maybe I've perverted some of God's Word. And I think we can do that here. This is an incredible, powerful, wonderful doctrine of God's abounding grace that's available through Christ. And we don't want to water it down. Now, God knew, of course, when He gave Paul these words, that it would be misinterpreted. He knew that when we, or Paul or anybody else, preaches salvation by grace alone, we will be accused of giving people a license to sin. Paul was accused of that. We'll be accused of it. What we'll be accused of, is, if to, to use a theological word, is antinomianism. Antinomianism, that's a false teaching. It's a heresy. It claims that believers are under absolutely no obligation to keep the law, that the law is irrelevant to us. And the truth is, there are plenty of antinomians out there. And some of them call themselves Baptists. (laughs) They got all kinds of names. But they think it really doesn't matter if I obey God or not. He's always going to forgive me, isn't he? So my sin's not really that big a deal, is it? I mean, God's just going to forgive me. And so that's one reason God gives us chapter 6. And it's one reason he starts chapter 6 with this question. What shall we say then? In other words, what shall we conclude as a result of knowing about God's abounding grace in Christ. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? After all, he just said it, where sin abounded, God's grace abounded all the more. The word antinomian comes from two Greek words, anti, the prefix, anti means against or opposed to. And then nomian comes from the Greek word nomos, which means the law. You put them together and you get against the law, lawlessness. And antinomianism is a ditch. It's a heresy, but it's a ditch on one side of God's way of truth. There's another ditch on the opposite side of God's way of truth, and we call that legalism. Legalism says you must keep the law in order to be saved. So God has a straight and narrow truth about salvation that he reveals to us in his word, and it goes between two ditches the ditch of antinomianism, and the ditch of legalism. Now, no one called himself an antinomian. 
you know, we, we wouldn't do that. None of us want to be an antinomian. And none of us want to be legalists. So no one has called himself a legalist. We use both those words pejoratively to describe people who seem to be in one of those ditches. Now, I gotta, don't miss the word seem there. We've got to be really careful here. Sometimes they really are in a ditch. And sometimes they're not. Sometimes they're on the straight and narrow path, but they look like they're in a ditch to someone who is in the other ditch. Do you understand what I'm saying? Sometimes they seem to be in a ditch from someone who's looking at them from the other ditch. So a person might be getting it exactly right, but they're called antinomian because the person who's talking about them is a legalist. Or somebody may be getting it exactly right, but they're called a legalist because they're being looked at by someone who is an antinomian. So we've got to be really careful. We Baptists are, and I won't speak for other denominations, I'll just speak for my own, but we Baptists are frequently accused of believing, and I guess I better interject here, sometimes it's not just an accusation, sometimes it's real guilt. Sometimes we're guilty of believing that you can get saved in some kind of emotional experience at VBS or at a revival or whatever, and and then just keep on living a self-centered, sinful life and still be guaranteed of going to heaven just because of some words you prayed or some experience you had. Maybe it was very emotional. Now, if you know the scripture at all, you know that's a great misunderstanding and a perversion of scripture. People who believe that, whether or not they've ever heard the word, are genuine antinomians. They think it doesn't matter how I live my life. I've been saved, quote unquote. <laughs> but the sad thing is that because some people have perverted the doctrine of grace, Satan has whispered to other people that doctrine of grace is a bad doctrine. It leads to people excusing sin. You can't embrace that doctrine. That's dangerous. It's going to just lead to sin. (laughs) And out of a fear of antinomianism, we can be cheated out of a really powerful and precious and beautiful and wonderful biblical truth, and we can end up as legalists. But listen, it's okay to be accused of antinomianism. It's okay to be accused of it. We just need to be sure we're not guilty of it. We need to be sure we're okay with being accused of it. (laughs) That's okay. We just want to make sure we're not guilty of it. Do you understand what I'm saying? (laughs) If, If anyone preaches justification by works, and they're preaching that very loudly and clearly, no one's going to ever accuse him of antinomianism. I mean, you know what I'm saying? If a man said, listen, in order to get to heaven, here's what you got to do. And he starts listing things. You know, you got to teach the kingdom of Ten Commandments, or you got to live by the golden rule. You got to do all these good works. By the way, you got to attend church regularly. By the way, you got to have to tithe. By the way, you need to be baptized. He, he would never be accused of antinomianism. No one would say, well, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? He said, no, <laughs> tell you all along, you got to do all this stuff. That'd be a nonsense question if you were talking to a true legalist. It's only when we preach the amazing, but listen, it's true, the true doctrine of salvation by grace through faith that we leave ourselves open to being accused of being an antinomian. But we have to remember through all this that some, by their lives, prove that they really are antinomians. They really do seem to think that grace really does mean it doesn't matter how much I sin. I can sin and sin and sin. It's no big deal. They're genuine antinomians. And listen, 
Paul has said some things leading up to this chapter that it doesn't take much imagination to realize, oh, I can see how people could come up with that misunderstanding. Look at what he said in Romans chapter 3, because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So people say, oh, if I only get the knowledge of sin through the law and I can't get justified by keeping the law, then I guess it doesn't matter if I sin and break the law. That's not what he's saying, of course. Romans 3.28, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith, apart from works of the law. Romans 4, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. All I'm trying to say is it's, it's pretty easy for some people to look at that, if, they, if they're predisposed this way, especially to say, well, I guess God doesn't care about my disobedience. All he cares about is my faith. And so the doctrine of justification by faith alone seems dangerous in the sense that it really can be misunderstood. It can be misinterpreted. It really can. So it's dangerous. Yes, it is, if that's the case. But that's true. So it just has to be dangerous. We just have to make sure we're getting it right. But listen, I hope you hear what I'm trying to say here. If we're not at least exposed or exposing ourselves to that misunderstanding, it's because we're not teaching salvation by grace through faith. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's only when you teach the truth about salvation by grace through faith that you expose yourself to that misunderstanding. That's what Paul was doing. It's unlikely that anyone would ever have accused, for example, the Roman Catholic Church of antinomianism. Because they had all these works, all these hoops you had to jump through, all these things that you were expected to do in order to receive salvation. But the Roman Catholic Church certainly did accuse Martin Luther of antinomianism because he understood Romans and he taught the book of Romans. So that question, what shall we say then? Are we continuing sin so that grace may increase? Is answered in verse 2. May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? First of all, in the Greek, may it never be. That's a good translation. The Greek is meganoito. It's a very, very, very strong negative. Some translations might say absolutely not. Such a thing is unthinkable. Never, never, never. I mean, those, those, that kind of negative. No way. <laughs> Unfortunately, the King James translators put God's name in this verse. They translate it with the words, God forbid. But in the Greek, God's name's not used there. And listen, I got to be honest with you. This is pretty kind of personal with me, and I'm not saying you fit into this, but, but in my younger years, I often heard people using God's name in vain that way. They would use those two words as a way of just expressing strong negative and 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 it was they weren't really being reverent about God's name so I'm a lot more comfortable just to stick with the Greek and leave God's name out of it at least that's my experience you know when when, when I heard those words God forbid when I was young I knew that the people speaking it weren't really reverencing God and so the King James translation to my ears comes too close to using his name in vain here now I know I know I can hear the arguments of people right now as they hear this saying wait a minute uh, you, isn't it just a prayer? And yes, you could interpret it as a prayer. You could, you could interpret it as, please, Father, don't let it happen. Please, God, forbid it from happening. That just wasn't the tone that I heard those two words being used over and over again when I was younger. 
The next phrase is, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now, I have read that those who really know Greek really well say that in the original, the word we would have to be emphasized. It's kind of like, how shall we? We, we of all people, we who died to sin, how shall we still live in it? The point being, if we really understood who we are in Christ, we would never think of asking such a question. We only ask it if we don't understand who we are in Christ. So the better we understand what God says about who we are in Christ, the more likely we are to live our lives in a way that will bring him glory. And did you notice he says here that we died to sin? That's a good translation. We died to sin. The Greek is past, and it's past completed action. It's called the aorist tense in, in Greek. The past completed action does not imply a process of dying. It does not describe what's happening right now. It does not describe our present condition. He's simply describing something that happened to us. We died to sin. And because that truth, in one way or another, turns out to be very difficult for some people, there are many ways that people have tried to reinterpret these words, misinterpret, misunderstand these words, I believe. So I want us to think about it kind of quickly, because you may have heard somebody explain this passage this way, one of these ways. One possible misunderstanding would be that of people who actually believe that we Christians can reach a state of sinless perfection in this life. You know, there are some who believe that. And they would conclude that we Christians are people who no longer sin at all. But that can't be the case. That can't be what he means here, because in verse 12 and 13, he goes on to say things that just don't, don't make any sense if we've reached a state of sinless perfection in this life. Look at verse 12, for example. He said, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And verse 13, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Those commands make no sense whatsoever if we're already sinlessly perfect, right? We also have verses like 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, that thoroughly rejects sinless perfectionism. I mean, if you ever run anybody that believes in that, these verses seem clear. If we say that we have no sin, and I have run into people who said they have no sin, but he says here, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. I mean, it's pretty clear. I think John is very clear inspired by the Holy Spirit, of course. So that's one way that people can misinterpret this. There's a second way that some people interpret these words, we who are dead to sin. Some people interpret it, how shall we who ought to be dead to sin still live in it? And the idea there would be that, well, any Christian worthy of the name Christian ought to put away sin, so we ought to be dead to it. The problem is, that's not what he said. He says, we died to to sin. There's no ought to there at all. Third possibility, how shall we who are dying more and more to sin still live in it? Again, that's not what he said. 
we died to sin, he said. Fourth possibility, how shall we who have renounced sin still live in it? That's not what he said. Fifth possibility, how shall we who died to the guilt of sin still live in it? That's not what he said. <laughs> now, I know what people, they have good intentions when they interpret it these ways. And maybe these thoughts have a little bit of truth in them. But when we try to substitute these ideas for what God's really saying here, we miss something very profound and very thrilling and very important that he's teaching us here. So why do some people interpret these verses in these other ways? Well, many times they're just afraid of being charged with antinomianism. <laughs> you know, we don't want to fall in that ditch. Or maybe they're afraid that if they don't add the clarifying words, They'd be guilty of teaching perfectionism. Some people, may, they know better than that. They know the Bible doesn't teach it. So it but it sounds like maybe that's what he means, so they got to clarify it. What does it mean? Well, in this extended passage here in Romans, God's teaching us that there was a time when all of us, every one of us, lived under the reign of sin. Back in chapter 5, verse 21, we looked at this verse earlier. Look at it again. So that as sin reigned... In death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So there was a time when we were under the power of sin, under the rule of sin. That's what the reign of sin means. We were slaves of sin. When we became Christians, we died to that sin. We were transferred out of sin's reign, out of sin's power, we're no longer slaves of sin. Now, I know some people might say, but I still feel the power of temptation and I still feel the power of sin. How can you say I've died to it? That's where we have to be careful. <laughs> Stay with me. Remember, I'm going to give you some examples here, but what God says is the truth about a situation is true. And what our perception of that situation might be might be a little different than God's truth. Those two may be different things. Let's stick with God's truth. We'll see this pretty often in Scripture. For example, listen to this. He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. That's in Colossians chapter 1. Now, that's true. If you're a Christian, it's true, whether you feel like it or not. It doesn't matter how you feel. You understand what I'm saying? It's what God says. Look at this one. For our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's true, whether we feel like it or not. How about this one? Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. We're aliens and strangers. That's true, whether we feel like it or not. How about this? Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. And so God, we're making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We're ambassadors for Christ, whether we feel like it or not. We've changed kingdoms once and forever. We're no longer in the kingdom of sin. It no longer reigns over us. It no longer controls us. It no longer rules over us. Once we were there, we were in Adam. Now we are in Christ. That's what chapter 5 is all about. And these things are true if we're trusting Jesus, regardless of how we may feel about it. And in the same way, when we turn to Christ, we transferred our trust from ourselves to him. We died to sin. And that's just true. No matter how we may feel about it, it's true. 
Now look at the word live there in verse 2. May it never be. How shall we who die to sin still live in it? The word live implies to continue in it or abide in it. Jesus reinforced this in John chapter 8. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin, the Greek is continuous action, continues to commit sin. Who, 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 everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. And then John underscores this in 1 John. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him and he cannot sin. Again, the Greek word is the Greek is keep on sinning, practicing sin, because he is born of God. It's impossible and unthinkable to go on living in sin because we're now under the power of grace. We're out from under the power of sin. We're under the power of Christ. Grace makes it impossible that we would just go on living in sin in the same way we once lived in sin. But wait... What's going on here? Because there seems to be some kind of disconnect here. I mean, wait a minute. Why do we keep falling into sin? (laughs) Here's an analogy that may help. It helps me. Think of two fields with a fence between them. One of those fields belongs to the devil. It's dark. It's ugly. It's where we once lived. We were slaves of Satan, slaves of sin. But by God's grace, we've been transferred to the other field, the other side, God's side, full of light. He set us free from Satan and sin. But the the field we once lived in is still over there. And the devil's still over there with all his powers of persuasion and deception. So he doesn't have authority over us any longer. But he can shout at us across the fence, you know. You say, well, why do we listen? Well, old habits. We used to listen to him all the time, didn't we? We were slaves. And now we're prone to forget what our new position is. And our flesh is weak. But we don't have to give in to him. We're not his slaves anymore. We have power over him. But we often do give in. That's one of the reasons we need to put on the belt of truth every day, including the truth about who we are in Christ. And if people say, well, that's hard to believe, that's hard to swallow. Maybe. (laughs) It's just true. It was hard for Abraham, I'm sure, to swallow what God told him, but it's still true. Abraham just believed God. God said, I'm counting that to you for righteousness. Paul's saying here, if you misunderstand grace, if you misunderstand it, you may find yourself asking a question like verse 1. But if you do ask that question, it proves you totally misunderstood the meaning and purpose of grace. Is the purpose of grace to allow us to continue in sin? (laughs) Of course not. How ridiculous. It's to deliver us from the power of sin, the reign of sin, and to bring us under the reign of grace. 521 again, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord out from the reign of sin, into the reign of grace. A man who's really and truly justified has a totally different attitude towards sin. He will not be asking, so since I'm under grace, it's okay for me to keep on sinning like my flesh wants to do? Now, a man who has a clever satanic imitation of God's grace may ask that. 
But that man's lost. He doesn't really know Christ, regardless of what he has to say. It's lost people who've been deceived with a counterfeit salvation who will ask questions like, well, since I'm saved by grace, isn't it okay for me to keep on sinning? If our deepest desire is to keep on sinning, we've not been saved by grace. So Paul, led by the Spirit, anticipated that question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? And in the rest of this chapter, Paul is going to proceed to show us how totally absurd that kind of thinking is. We're not going to have time to do that now, but I hope in some small way I've whetted your appetite to dig, to study it some more. But for now, let's stop here. Father, thank you so much for this incredible, powerful, wonderful, exciting part of your word. Thank you for causing Paul, inspired by your spirit, to write down the letter to the Romans. And thank you for the way you've used it over and over again throughout church history, which tells us that it's very powerful and you've proved its power again and again and again. Lord, thank you for this powerful chapter six that we've been looking just at the introduction of. Lord, we just touched the surface. But thank you for reminding us of who we are in Christ. Thank you for reminding us of the horror of sin, helping us to see your perspective on all this, to understand grace, to understand salvation by grace through faith. Lord, thank you for this incredible truth. And Lord, I pray you'd help us to never be afraid of being accused of being antinomians. But Lord, keep us out of the ditches. We certainly don't want to be legalists, believing that you have to do certain things to be saved. And we don't want to be antinomians, believing we can behave any way we want to behave, that our flesh wants to behave, and it doesn't matter. We want to be on your straight and narrow path. So help us, Lord, just to trust your word, to believe your word. And I thank you that as we do, you change us and you give us a hatred for sin and a love for you and what you've done for us and your righteousness and your word. And Lord, you give us victory as we walk in your truth and in your word. And we thank you for that. So please help us to do that. Help us to keep our focus on you and on your truth and not be deceived by the enemy shouting at us over the fence. Help us, Lord, to listen to you and not to him. Help us to stay in your word. Help us to be useful, to bring you a lot of glory, and to help others find this awesome truth in our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.